Welcome to season two, episode 46 of the Indo Techno podcast. My name is Alan Hallowell, and I'm the founder of Gizmo Advisors. Now, one of the most consistent features of Indonesia's still young startup landscape is the relative lack of business building or operational track record amongst many of its founders. Many of our interviewees, some fresh out of school, do indeed bring with them entirely new thinking. However, what we see less of is a track record of having previously built large organizations. This lack of experience can result in challenges as the company seeks to scale. Today's guest, Alex Rusli, founder of fintech leader DigiAsia Bios, brings to this and his other current entrepreneurial endeavors a rich history of having built organizations, turned some of them around, and otherwise having actually grown companies. I personally got to know Alex during his seven and a half years as CEO of leading telecoms operator Indosat. My team at Deutsche Bank, in fact, covered the company for some time. Alex, it's great to have you on the show today. Alan, thank you so much for having me on the show. You're very welcome. Now, as I mentioned, Alex, as a former TMT analyst, I guess of 16 years altogether, and remember TMT stands for Tech, Media, and Telecoms for our audience, I'm used to meeting A, career telecoms executives, or B, an internet startup founder, but rarely do I find someone who has made the move from traditional telcos to a tech startup. Can you tell us how you made this transition? So first of all, my parents were entrepreneurs. So I'm used to the entrepreneur life. Yeah? When you have a good life, you have a bad time, you, you go rich, you go poor. So I'm used to that growing up. But of course, throughout the years, as my education in the IT space, I have a PhD in, in, I think the natural progression when you're somewhat good in what you do, it pushes you to, to go to bigger organizations. And that's how I ended up in InnoSat. But after being in InnoSat, I realized the calling and then what I like to do in life is less of the, the, those kind of big organization stuff. So I'm doing what I'm doing now. Excellent. Well, we have Indosat, one of the largest telco operators in Indonesia. It's been around for many years. And DigiAsia Bios, a much younger, more nimble startup. What are the most prominent cultural differences between Indosat, which you helmed through 2017, and DigiAsia? So Indosat is a business that requires licenses. It's a stable infrastructure license business. So people who came into the organization obviously are those who are good in infrastructure, i.e. stable in nature, right? Stable in nature. Now, DG Asia, of course, it's license as well, but the plan of using the license, as you see, is that we had to find the business model. It didn't have a culture per se. So the culture was formed as the business formation came up. Second, third year, it became more clear what to do. The main culture in Indosat structured, predictable. In DG Asia, it's what you do. You have to adjust based on what the customer needs. Find the formation. And the culture follows what the business looks like. But in general, we are ready to adapt based on any requirement or the customer needs. That's the main culture difference. Understood. Now, just continuing this comparison, I'm often asked whether telco companies can ever not just connect calls and support data connections, but quote unquote, move up the stack to become viable players in what we would call higher level services like online financial services. For instance, offering lending or payment services over a mobile app or streaming media, whether it's music or video, or even social networking and other areas. But successful proof points from telcos seem to be 
few and far between. Why is that in your mind? I think it's very clear in my mind. Again, it's that cycle. You get a license and then you build the network and then you provide a product that needs to be delivered on a stable basis. That's the core essence of a telco business. Stable, predictable business. And then when you want to do a startup, whether it includes lending, social media, and all that, how many companies fail until something hits the jackpot? Telcos don't have that kind of mentality of, okay, you start something, fail, start again. Failure is not an option for Delphos because they're, they're in the stable business. So I don't see the DNA of a company that wants stability. You can move easily to a company that has the DNA of trial and error. A lot of people use, how can SoftBank do it? SoftBank is a good reference that many sellers want to be, but you have to remember that SoftBank became a telco later on. SoftBank was a digital company with trial and errors and all that. And then they end up buying Vodafone Japan and became SoftBank Telecommunications. So the DNA we're selling is very different. That's a really excellent point regarding SoftBank. I didn't think about it that way. Now, Alex, here on the Indotechno podcast, we're used to having representatives from the fintech industry who are focused on individual verticals, such as e-wallet or P2P lending or remittances or digibanks. Now, DigiAsia BIOS spans all five of these categories, e-wallet, P2P lending, remittances, digibanks. How should we think about DigiAsia in this context? So we are not in competition to those big boys who are individual strong offerings, B2C offerings. On the one side, in Indonesia has Shopee, has GoPay, has Ovo, has Linkaja, right? There's the state-owned company, and, and there's others. We are here to provide service to companies that don't want to get their own license, or waiting to get their own license, or can't be bothered still thinking about it, but cannot decide yet. Smaller companies can't afford to have to have a license, so it's too difficult dealing with regulators and maintaining a system just for that. What we do with our license. Typically, we, you can call them white label. We become part of our partners or our customers' ecosystem, but we integrate ourselves into them. And we don't care about our brand. So if you look at Starbucks, for example, the Starbucks card, that uses our license and our back-end tech, but everything front-end is theirs. And there's a few others partnered with us. Just a few days ago, we launched with a train company. They use the brand KAI, Kata Api Pay, right? The back-end is our license and our tech. So companies can focus on what they do best. And forget about the fintech service, whether it's P2P lending, whether it's wallet, whether it's a digital branch, or whether it's written. They can forget about all the hassle. They can just use the service using our offering. So clearly the operative word here is enabler and not competitor. Now, Alex, can you share with us a brief history of how DigiAsia came to have secured licenses and e-money, P2P lending, remittances, and other areas? So we started DigiAsia in 2018, a few months after I left. First of all, we got the wallet license through an acquisition of a company that Harry, and Harry, he's now, he's now one of the commissioners of BRI and his partner, one of the ex-regulators many years before, they had a company that had a license. So basically we acquired through ShareSwap. When I left, we had money, but we didn't have tons of money. So we had to do things smartly. We applied for the P2P lending license ourselves. We bought the remittance company. Then we waited for the digital branch license. There's a few other things where we just organically pick the license and then got them ourselves. We're here four years later and it's relatively fast. Prashant and I, my co-founder, we're not young. I'm up 51 now. So we thought we can't wait forever for it to be mature. So we had to find by sacrificing some shares early, but we thought that's fine. Now, 
Alex, we Americans like to say that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Is a majority of the unique value proposition of DigiAsia that it indeed has secured so many valuable licenses? If not, what is the biggest unfair advantage that the company has? At the end, Alan, the license is just a license, right? It has value, but without the right angle and proposition and the right technology, because we're a technology company, it's not going to work if you don't have the right technology behind it and you don't have the right sales approach. It's also not going to work. So the license is one thing. Our company is full of senior people because when you sell B2B, you have to deal with the C-level of the customer. We don't have a product that's just ready to be used, right? You have to design new experiences. And we have to have a back-end technology that supports easy integration. The combination license, of course, is important, but everyone's senior in the company that's selling, and that's the people are super important. And the back-end tech needs to be flexible. You can't take one. You have good tech, license, but if the junior people selling, it's not going to work. So I still do a lot of the selling myself. Prashan does as well. So one of the chief is ex-CMO of AirAsia, one of the ex-CMO of Three and a few other telcos. So it's been in C-levels before. So they can actually talk to our partners also at the C-level and then be comfortable with themselves selling. Understood. Now, Alex, you mentioned earlier that most of our services and solutions are offered on a white label basis, meaning our customers brand the service in their own name. So for instance, I believe that we have partners on the e-wallet side, such as Alphamart and Indomaret. Do they have their own wallet brand that they market? Alphamart and Indomart, they are not wallet partners. They're basically cash in and cash out partners for us. We're lucky to be able to have both as our partners. Very strong branding, very strong presence, visible. Any of our partners can utilize Alphamart, Indomart as a cash in and cash out point. But there are others. The more relevant examples would be partners who are typically doing B2C offerings. I mentioned Starbucks, home credit. They have typical offerings that require the wallet as part of their offering to their own customers. Thanks for that, Alex. So similarly, how do we work with the likes of Western Union or MoneyGram on the remittances side? In the case of Western Union and MoneyGram, they're again not a wallet partner. So we use them as cash in and cash out points outside of Indonesia. We have a lot of presence in factories. So we open counters in factories. In the past, factory workers, if they want to send money to their hometown, they have to go and find a shop that's remittances. So we open up a counter, you know, working with the cooperative of the factory, for example, and they, in those, those counters that's run by the cooperatives, they can either receive money that's been sent by overseas, which happens, they have families that work in Hong Kong and all that, or they can actually send money to their family abroad if required, or they can send money to their hometown, their different parts of Indonesia. So that's how we use Western Union and MoneyGram either as a channel for money to go in and go out of the country. And on the other side, MoneyGram and Western Union and other partners all have touch points where people can go to very visible where they can actually get the service. Understood. So maybe to summarize this, can we say that our most promising customers are those that do not want to achieve necessarily deep vertical integration? For instance, they do not want to implement their own P2P lending solutions or payment tools. And instead, they're kind of using our engine under the hood of their own machine. Is that correct? Totally. If you don't have wallet at your core business, why do you need a wallet license and have the hassle? If you're a lending company, but you need a wallet to make the customer experience better, use us rather than getting your own wallet. If you have a wallet, but you need remittance service, just use our remittance service. 
We provide whatever our customer wants based on the infrastructure that they have. Some of our customers, they're also mobile money players. They only use us for the Alpha Mart, Elo Mart, cash in, cash out point. That's also fine for us. Whatever our partner wants from us, that's what we give. We never offer the whole thing. Excellent. So let me ask you a little more about the relationship there. Does DigiAsia have to do a lot of bespoke development work with our customers? As a result, does the company have a lot of software engineers? We don't do a lot of bespoke work because we've done a lot of the APIs that is typically required. So the way our partners work with us, they typically use our APIs to get access to our services. With big customers, they all want something different. So that's fine. What we have in-house are some engineers, some testers, and a lot of senior IT architect experts. They know how to connect. They know what needs to be done without breaking the integrity of systems. So what, what the requirement is there, what we do is we typically outsource them. Our partners just use the existing APIs that we have. Understood. Now, a big picture question for you, Alex. What are the biggest bottlenecks to the adoption of online financial services in Indonesia? Is it a lack of digital literacy amongst users? Is it a lack of basic financial literacy? Is it asymmetric adoption between city dwellers and people in the countryside? Or is it entirely something else in your mind? In the case of wallet, I think the big cities, everyone are literate and have access to some form of wallet. Whether it's a wallet that's our white label solution, for example, whether it's GoPay, whether it's ShopeePay as a means of payment. The problem is when you go down the lower end of the pyramid, there's not a lot of cash to be put in the wallet. There's a different difficulty there. If you don't have disposable income to store, if you work on a day-by-day basis, you have nothing to put in. So that is the biggest impediment I see. Everyone I talk to understands financial use cases. They understand paying using QR, paying using this. But the biggest problem I see is there's not enough disposable income to be put in the wallet that they can actually just leave there for the moment. If you want to use the wallet, then you put something in, then use the wallet to get discounts. If people do that, the discount is huge, but otherwise people can't be bothered. Understood. Now, Alex, how do you think of DigiAsia longer term? Do you see it as an independent private company for the foreseeable future? Or do you think there are benefits to being acquired by another player? Or do you envision going for an IPO at some point? I do think that given the direction of the company, a moving target like all things in this digital world. But I think it's naturally progressing to become an independent company. Because the problem is you have partners who are competing with each other. And if we get acquired by someone, that may not be what other customers that we have or other partners we have like. We have clauses in some of the commercial agreements that we have. Okay, as long as you're not associated with X, Y, Z. Okay, as long as you're not associated with A, B, C. I think it'll move towards an independent company. I mean, we're not a B2C company. We don't burn money for marketing. We just have partners who pay us using all kinds of different mechanisms, whether it's by transaction, whether it's a fixed fee or whichever way they will prefer to pay us. But the direction is independent. The IPO comes with other problems as well. The regulatory requirements, you add new things, right? I mean, we're dealing with enough regulatory touch points at the moment, yet alone adding another one. Understood. So Alex, what are we most excited about on our 2022 development roadmap? Good thing after being in this business for years, the business model being an independent provider of these services, that kind of happened end of the second year. Before that, there was a lot of distrust. Are you going to steal our customer? Are you this? Are you going to be a B2C player, but you're actually acting B2B first? I think the market now views us as a clear independent player. 
we have the trust as being a B2B independent player. There's a lot of requests and partners in the pipeline coming in 2020. So 2022 is just all about growth and executing all these partners that want to go live with us and allowing them to grow faster by attaching whatever they need from us to make the customer experience on their end better. That, I think, is what we're excited about 2022. We are tying ourselves closer to banks. All the licenses that we have still has limitations. The limitations typically is around the fact that under the Indonesian regulations, certain products can only be launched through banks. So we need to tie ourselves closer to banks. I don't want to call it digital bank. In Indonesia, a lot of the banks are very digital in nature anyway, because there's a lot of touch points that use digital. Since the BCA days, it's more advanced than a lot more countries in terms of usage. We may need to associate ourselves closer to some of these banks to provide banking level services for some of the customers that we have today. Understood. Now, Alex, I notice in addition to your quote unquote day job, you occupy a wide range of board positions and commissioner appointments. How do you prioritize your work? The good thing with my board position is they're all publicly listed companies. They're typically quarterly things. Once every quarter report and once your shareholders meeting, if at most it's twice a year. They're all independent commissioners, so I don't get involved in business. Most don't want me to get involved anyway, but I just need to be that sanity check party. Because I'm an independent commissioner, I'm typically also the head of the audit committee, making sure that everything is compliant. So it gets busy every quarter, four times a year, basically. I do also enjoy talking to early stage founders. I do a lot of investments there, small investments early stage ideas that come out, Alan. How the hell do they think about these things? I spent maybe five, six hours a week to listen to these ideas, and I may end up putting 20K, 30K investments. Understood. Alex, if you don't mind a more personal question, I believe you're quite involved in the martial arts. Can you give us some more color around this specific pastime? I'm in love with martial arts since I was young, but more importantly, as I grew older, you have to do something you really like. Otherwise, it just becomes a requirement. Every day, I practice in the morning at night. And before COVID, I sparred on a regular basis, uh, three times a week. I've stopped sparring because of COVID, but I still practice one and a half hours to two hours in the morning and one and a half hours to two hours at night. When you enjoy something, you don't count the hours like what you do now, right? You do this podcast program, you like it. You don't mind spending time on it. So the same thing for me, that is my reset button. That is my health button. Keep me sane and healthy, Alex. Thanks for that. Alex, tremendous having you join us today. It was great reconnecting with you after all these years in your current incarnation as a leading startup founder. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Alan, thank you so much for having me on the show. Take care. Fantastic. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indo Techno podcast with us. Tanima Kasitela Menen Garakan. Sampai jumpa lagi.